Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. As the Bible describes the tongue or our words, our speech, the words that we choose to use in conversation, the words we choose to use when we're speaking aloud to a group, the written word. The Bible illustrates this in just simply saying the tongue. Moreover, it describes, of course, the tongue in our mouth. So this is the words that are spoken, the words that are said from our mouth, perhaps even more than the written word. But the Bible warns about the tongue over and over and over again. What we say must be godly. It must be truthful. Now we're sinful still, even as Christians, even as God followers, we still struggle with sin. But the Bible warns over and over and over again about what we say because. Different than you heard when you were children, what we say actually has a powerful impact in our world. It either affirms our testimony in Christ and it proclaims God's glory to the world, or simply in the fact that we are truthful and honest in what we're saying, whether we're talking about our faith or whether we're just talking about practical matters or we're talking about business, if we're talking in truthfulness that we are affirming the character of the God that we worship. And if we go around that, then we have already strayed from that which our Lord has called us to do, to be, and to say. Let's open in prayer, and then we'll open our Bibles to Genesis 12. Dear God, the one who is the way and the truth and the life, Jesus, you said that no one comes to the Father except by you, our Lord, our Savior. Let us affirm that in our hearts and in our minds, and yes, on our speech, on our lips. Let us proclaim your name in this earth. Let us proclaim your glory, and let us also not forget that you are the way, the truth, and the life. The truthfulness is a hallmark of your character, of who you are, of who we are, and who we are to be in you. Because you have called us out from the world to be holy, to be set apart to obey your commandments, and to be mirrors of the glory and the character of God on this earth. So let us embrace that and let us step into that identity anew every single day 
for the glory of our God. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Genesis 12, which we started last week. And now we're continuing as Abram and Sarai are journeying on. Verse 9 from last week, Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And in verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Well, that's a good compliment. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. But then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Very interesting. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Egypt saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called to Abram and said, What is this that you have done? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now to start off with here, it should be said that curiously enough, Sarai was Abram's half-sister, and we learned this later in chapter 20 of actually a similar account. But we all know Abram was not truthful in what he said. Abram and Sarai could have been honest about their marriage as they entered Egypt, like so many other things I need, I, I would assume, in their lives. To just be honest, be truthful. But they were not honest. He had this, this tension between truth versus deception. And truth is something of the light. Truth is something of life in God. And deception is something that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. You'll see the subtitle in your Bible, in most Bibles probably, that says the fall. This was when Satan came and tempted Eve and Adam to disobey God, to challenge God. That was deception. Abram also struggled here with assumption versus actuality. Abram risked his life, if you, his, excuse me, his wife, if you think about it, her body, and I would say her mental and emotional health by assuming that if Abram said 
she was his wife, that the Egyptians would kill him and take her. Therefore, he acted against that, presupposing it would be, quote-unquote, better if they lied to everybody. But a problem with that. Number one, he and we will never know if the Egyptians would have done anything to either of them or not had they known that Abram and Sarai were married from the moment that they entered Egypt. Or that perhaps if they would have been protected, that it would have been by God's protection that they were protected. And two, much of what Abram was fearful about in his assumption through his lie actually came true anyway. Sarai was taken away from him and brought to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh made her his wife. So there really was no recompense and no benefit to the lie. Let's look at this. 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Interesting how, he, interesting how the, the target of what he is seeking there is himself, but he's saying it to her in a way to try to coax her to get on board, to try to tell her that there is a benefit to her to go along with this lie. But this really comes back to bad leadership. God calls all men to leadership. God created the first man in the Garden of Eden. He created Adam, and he had a personal face-to-face -face type relationship with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And then he took one rib from the body of Adam to create Eve. And Adam says, at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I shall call her woman, for she was taken out of man. This testifies to God's delegated leadership structure. God is on the throne. God calls men to lead and shepherd their wives in godliness, in holiness, in truthfulness, in encouragement, in faith, in scripture, and in worship. Definitely all of this is testifying to what love is in a Christian relationship and as God calls men and women to marry and to be a family or to be a married unit or to be together. God says it's not good that man would be alone, I will create him a helper, suitable for him or fit for him, that they might fit together and, and by so doing, they might honor God.
This is the purpose of marriage, that we might be united with one other person, a man with a woman, a woman with a man in God's design, and they might, and that they might together be of one like mindset. Still individuals, still have an individual relationship, personal relationship with God, but that they might more and more so have a similar mindset in worshiping God. They, they might have a similar mindset in terms of the way that they live together to worship God. God is the great uniter. He brings people from all races and all ethnicities and all languages and all nations together in him. And his call for us in marriage is to bring people together in marriage in him to glorify God so that they might know the word and the definition and the purpose of love in a way completely unexperienced by the world. The world thinks that they know what love is, but they don't unless they know it in God. This is why God gives us each other in marriage. And this is the great call for and to men. It's not so that they could be Pharaoh to their wives. It's not so that they could be a king to their wives or be an authority official to their wives. No. It's so that they can be a shepherd to their wife. A shepherd is gentle and a shepherd is loving and a shepherd is encouraging and a shepherd is intentional and a shepherd is purposeful and a shepherd seeks God. If you have someone like this leading your marriage, this is going to be a marriage of abundance. This is going to be a marriage that magnifies and glorifies God together. This is going to be something that uplifts the wife, who encourages the wife, who affirms her worth in God, who affirms her identity in God, who affirms her to God. And there's no better and there's no safer and there's no more welcome and loving place to be than in a relationship like that. Basically, someone who's ushering you continually to the Father. Who's pointing you to Christ and pointing you to Christ and pointing you to Christ and saying, in him, you will have your full fulfillment. In him, you will have your full purpose. In him, you will have your full identity. And my job is simply to love you more and more and more, I pray, like Christ does. This is God's design in marriage. This is not what we read about in today's passage. But all men who are married are called to be God's appointed leader in the marriage and in their household to lead their wives and if they have children, to lead their children in godliness, in truth, in encouragement, in faith. And that means in worshiping God. 
Abram not only was ungodly in his role of leadership with this, but Sarai was also ungodly in her obedience to Abram's ungodliness. Did you see that here? Did you catch that? Let's look at these verses right here. So he says in verse 13, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. She was taken. Notice that language there. Take. That doesn't sound very gentle. She was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. So Sarai was complicit. Sarai also acted in ungodliness, just like Abram acted in ungodliness, because they both decided that this untruthfulness, this deception, this deceiving was the way to go. Even when she was being taken into Pharaoh's house and their marriage was broken apart, She still went. I, I don't know if we've stopped to think about this here. She could have been sexually abused by the Pharaoh or by anyone when she was taken, this group of people, since Pharaoh did not know she was married. And it may or may not be that she had sex with the Pharaoh at the least. Scripture doesn't say here, but what it does say in verse 19 is that Pharaoh took her for his wife. And sexual relations is a natural part of a marriage relationship. There's another disturbing part of all this, and that is the primary reason Abram led his wife into this disastrous situation. He wanted to be protected. I emphasized it earlier when I read verse 13. Let me read this again. Abram says to her in the plan, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So, Abram neglected the real call from God in his leadership, which was to protect his wife and to what? Trust the Lord. The Christian life is a never-ending lesson in trusting the Lord. You wake up in the morning, and what do you do? Do you think about this? Do you think about that? Do you think about what you have to do today? Do you... Are you already stressed? Are you already depressed? Where is your hope being placed? How are you employing the strength to carry through your day? To carry through the duties of your day? Where does your strength come from? Where do you go in times of need? When things get stressful, when you get depressed, when you get stressed, when you get anxious. 
When you have too little and you need more to get by, where do you go? Do you go to the Lord? Are you trusting in the Lord? Are you telling God, one, God, I trust you, and two, bringing your petitions to him? Is he the provider for you? Is he the provider God for you? Or are you not going to the Lord? Abram was called by God to be a godly leader to Sarai, to his wife. He was called to godliness in all areas of his life. And guess what? So are you and so am I. God has called us to himself. He has called us to godliness, to godly character, to truthfulness, to loving our wives, to loving our own bodies as unto the Lord, to take care of ourselves as unto the Lord, that we are doing it as though we were worshiping and honoring God with the way that we care for ourselves. But if we're married, Primarily, that means to care for your wife. And if you have children, that means also primarily or secondarily, but right there with it, very close. To carry them to God, to care for them, to provide for them. And this is servant leadership. He was, Abram was to protect his wife and to trust the Lord. None of us know what's going to happen in the future. If we're walking into a city and we don't know what's going to happen there. Like many jobs I've had, because some have been quite, quite important in the past. Never make assumptions. Act on facts and truth only. Assumptions can be very dangerous. And Abram was assuming the outcome of the future. And therefore, he acted very badly and he neglected his call to leadership in their marriage from God. And because we do not know what's going to happen in the future, where is our trust? Are we loving our wives and loving our children? Or as selfish men, Are we living for ourselves and making foolish decisions because we're giving way to fear instead of trusting God? The second half of Genesis 12 here today shows very plainly and very abruptly just how sinful Abram was as a man. We all know him as one of the great fathers of our faith, and yet he was a sinner, not that unlike you and I. And as we know, Romans 3.23, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. Adam, Abram become Abraham, David, These great men of the faith, Moses, these great men of the Old Testament, they're fallen sinners saved by the grace of God because God chooses and because God is good. 
Let's look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done? This is interesting language here. This is the same, that is the same phrase that God said to Adam and Eve in the garden after their sin. This is the same phrase God said to Cain after he murdered his brother Abel. Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? How did Pharaoh know? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her. Go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Pharaoh did not want anything more to do with them for many reasons, I think. But primarily, it was the plagues that the Lord brought on Pharaoh and his house, Scripture says. God acted in Abram's neglect to act. God carried his will forth because God had a plan for Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah. Because God was to carry his line of faith forward through the lives of men on this earth. Because the great genealogy of the faith goes all the way back in the Old Testament and it comes forward to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And God carries forth that line forward, not specifically through the life of Jesus, because he did not have any children or a wife. But we are all adopted into the family of God. And through the New Testament and to present day and carried forth day by day, God is working the plan of salvation and the plan of the kingdom of God in the lives of his people and in the lives of his children, present day. The heart of the matter in this is it all goes back to God. Abram had some bizarre completely insane assumption in his mind. And maybe that's not unlike certain things that Christians today also struggle with with regard to sin and temptation. But what did Abram do with that thought in his mind, with that fear in his mind of the Egyptian people? He entertained it. So much so that he coaxed his wife into complying with it. So he had a sinful thought in his mind and he coaxed her into also being sinful and complicit in it, which brought disaster into their marriage. And this would be the first time. And there would be, sadly, another time. 
but he was not trusting God. He wasn't listening to God. He didn't lead his wife in godliness and faith and they're entering into Egypt because of a famine and they needed food and that's why they were going there. And it's almost like he lost in his mind the reason that they were going there. He got so distracted in the lie. He got so distracted in getting off course that he forgot who he was in God. And that he is to trust God. He didn't lead his wife in godliness and faith. Instead, he let people take her into Pharaoh's house. I can't imagine any, any husband with a sober mind would be outraged at the moment anyone would approach their wife to take her away let alone take her away into a pagan pharaoh's house. But I guess Abram got what he wanted from verse 13 when it says in verse 16 that Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. What's interesting, we don't have a lot more here. We don't have his reaction. We don't know if he was depressed, if he was anxious, if he was angry at what he had done. We don't have the additional commentary. But I would be freaked out of my mind in anger at anyone who had approached to take away my wife. And in fact, I would never have offered her up as not my wife for anyone then, especially in that culture, then to take. Now I'm a single man, but still, in my mind, that's completely illogical. And yet in other ways, I know that I have sinned and I'm a sinner. And I have Romans 3.23 fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no distinction. So let's take a step back. Who are we looking to for our approval? For our identity? Is it the Lord or is it someone else? Our God promises good. Our God promises safety in him. Perhaps it's not safety as the tangible world knows safety, but it's a better form of safety. It's safety in the Lord and following him and obeying his commandments and loving him and in worshiping him. And when we distract our eyes to the things of this world and we take our eyes off of God, well, it's like Peter after a few steps outside the boat on top of the stormy seas. He was looking at Jesus and then he turned away to look at the waves. If Abram had been honest about his marriage, not only would it have shown obedience to God, it would have also shown affirmation of love to Sarai, his wife. And I think that though Sarai was complicit, yes, that this became the beginning of a rift in their marriage. 
And we're going to read about that more in the following chapters. It's, it's vitally important that we, yes, though we're still dealing with sin as Christians, must not only love our wives, but we must show love to our wives. It's two things. It's kind of like faith. We confess with our mouth, and our actions must also be compelled to affirm what we confess with our mouth. James says, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But those two are linked. In faith in God, and with your lifestyle in God, but also in love with your wife. Not just show her that you love her, but tell her that you love her, and use words besides I love you to your wife. Now, I love you is also good, and that should be repeated often. But there are other things that you can say to her that show your love and consideration and encouragement and faith in God to her. For God is whom she needs most of all and at all times, and we are to be a mirror of God's love to her. God has given us these precious relationships with our wives to be our closest human-to-human relationship on earth. And we are then to model Christ-likeness to our wives. Our roles as husbands is to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 Our example to our wives ought be so biblical, so in line with Scripture, that it may compel her in her growing passion to seek God more fervently, to know God better, to find her identity in God more and more and more. Christ came that we might have life and have it abundantly, it says in John 10.10. And we're to echo that example of Christ to our wives. You know, Satan works in deception. Satan's name means deceiver. This is what he does. The other part of John 10.10 says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And we know all the way back from Genesis 3 that Satan is a deceiver. And this passage today talks about deception. Deception has no place in the family of God. Lying has no place in the family of God. Our God instead is a God of light, a God of life. God of truth, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And that there is only one way to the kingdom of God. One way to be with God for eternity, and that is through Jesus Christ. 
that no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. And that's John 14, 6. And there is no love and there is no model of love that you will find on this earth like Christ's, not to the same extent. God is God and we are men. And God has chosen those who he has chosen and adopted us into the family of God. And this is the greatest story that has ever been told and is the most exciting story that you could ever hear and experience. And there is nothing that will affirm your wife more than Jesus Christ. And when we encourage our wives to Jesus Christ, to find her identity in him, to find her purpose in him, to find her greatest expression of love in him. And we get to be with our wives and do life together in service to God, in worship to God, and in glory to God. This is not the end of Abram's story. In fact, we're still very much at the beginning. And Abram, because he is chosen by God, will do what God has set out for him to do. Because God will ensure that that will happen. Because God has a plan for his people. And that is to be with him and to be led by him, to worship him and to glorify him. Let's pray. The God who sees and knows. The God who provides for us. The God whom we can trust at all times, even when we fall short. You are our creator. You are the one who loves us with an uncompromising love, a great love, a love so great that, Lord, you offer us a personal relationship with the God of all things, with yourself. We don't need a mediator on earth today to get to you. You say, we just need to humble ourselves, repent of our sin, and put our faith in Jesus Christ. And then we have access directly to God. At any moment, and at every moment, that we can trust you because you are good, that we can know you because you are good, and that our lives will never be the same because you are so good. Lead us, God, in your ways. Help us, God, to speak with truthfulness and righteousness and love. Let everything that we do be done in love because of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis 13.